You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, the man you come to for quantity, both in terms of volume and the number of words, Mark Bickney. With me, as always, is my co-host, Mike Walker, who's known for his quality, namely the quality of selecting poor co-hosts. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic. So today, just for a change of pace on So Very Wrong About Games, we've decided to talk about board games just to mix things up. Our feature game this week is going to be the Uwe Rosenberg worker placement game Feast for Odin, and our feature topic is going to be apps in board games. But before we get to that, I'd just like to spend a couple of moments acknowledging some of the great feedback we've been getting from our listeners. Some people have been commenting on our audio recording quality, and rest assured, this is a constant process of improvement for us, and we are working on it. We are currently nestled in Walker's lovely blanket fort in his room. I know, I've pulled up the rope ladder and we're all set to go. I noticed you left out the No Girls Allowed sign on the door. I did, I did. We should be all set and not be disturbed by those icky cootie girls. Good to hear. It's also the case that some people have requested timestamps, which is something we're going to be doing going forward. So check the episode description for timestamps of the games that we're going to discuss. Some people have also asked that we spend a little bit more time repeating the names of the game we're talking about, so you with your your goldfish attention span will be able to follow what we're talking about, and we're going to be doing that as best we can. And uh, finally, we have a special message here from a viewer who said, would you please be so kind as to shut that awful Mark boy up? I'd like to hear more of that nice Walker fellow. And uh, to that, I only have to say thanks, Mom. Glad you're listening. So with all that in mind, let us proceed to the games we played last week. Walker, what did you play last week? Last week, I've got First Martian. We pulled out again because I had only played it once. So we uh, pulled it out again and uh, ran through the starting scenario and one normal scenario. And it seems to be a game that when they introduce these scenarios, they change the rules so much that it's almost a block to get it to the table. But we got through it. It took a while to like pace through exactly what they expected us to do. And we're looking forward to starting the campaign. Yeah, in games like that especially, I wish they would do a little bit better job of, in the rulebook, flagging what's going to be changed later and trying to integrate things a little bit better. It often feels, and this is independently of the fact that the rulebook for First Martians is a train wreck of untold proportions, classic portal fare. Just in First Martians, I, I never really knew what bits I was supposed to know before setting up the scenario and which bits I wasn't supposed to know. So when you look at a scenario for the game, you're one, you know, it, it's really hard to integrate it to what you're already already supposed to understand. I found it an additional daunting challenge on top of a game that by itself is not particularly complicated. It just presents information in a very complex way. Is that your? Yeah, for sure. But I'm hoping like the the campaign, you know, breathes some legacy and or you know interesting bits into the scenarios so we'll see well i hope you enjoy your future play of first martians i i pretty much gave up on it but i'm lazy so 
Last week, I played Mombasa for the first time. This is an Alexander Pfister design. He of Great Western Trail. He released this in the year before he released Great Western Trail. And uh, Mombasa was, it was pretty good. I enjoyed it. I'd play it again. Wasn't anything spectacular. The sort of stock investment element isn't really much of a stock element. It's just a question of an increasing track. You never trade or lose things or, or anything of that nature. And it's also the case that there's a significant first mover advantage. So... It is not uncommon to find yourself in a position whereby about midway through the game you look at the board and, you know, the end is a foregone conclusion. And that's never a a, a big plus. One thing that did strike me about Mombasa, and I'd heard about this from a friend of mine before I actually played the game, was how it handles its theme. Mombasa is about colonial exploitation in the 18th and 19th century via merchant companies. And uh, suffice to say, without belaboring the point too much, this is not an era known for happy sunshine fun times. And it's not exactly a time in history when European countries were were at their best. And the intro to the rulebook has this fascinating mixture of acknowledging that it's about a terrible, terrible period of history and sort of hand-waving it away in an incredibly unconvincing way. It's fascinating. I I give the designer credit for at least acknowledging it, and he even includes uh, a book to read about African history of the period, so kudos to him for that. But in a way, it's even more strange than if he just ignored the matter. Personally, I would have much preferred if he were aware of the problem, if he knew that this was a terrible 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 moment in human history, then maybe he should have made the game about something else. This is a Euro game after all. And this is the same man after he brought us Mombasa brought us the Great Western Trail, which is completely ahistorical in the way that it deals with cattle drives. It it almost reverses the geography. I think that he designed Great Western Trail simply by having watched a couple of Westerns and figured, oh, Kansas City is an important city that, you know, I'll, I'll make a game around that while missing all the details. Not a serious problem for the gameplay, but again, kind of weird. And, and this is something that we're going to bring up again a little bit later. The danger of using culture as the mere thinnest veneer of backdrop for your game. So Mombasa definitely had that problem. I wish I wish it had been some sort of either another period in history or made up uh, a made up environment. Because if you know that it's nightmarish, why are you having us do it? And him saying, no, no, but this is sort of a parallel reality version of Africa where we're not doing terrible things, I found very unpersuasive. So anyway, pretty good game, unfortunate history, strange experience overall. Bad bad backdrop. Yeah, exactly. All right, we brought Blood Rage out again last night, and I know I already talked about Blood Rage last week. Just a quick note, I'm just always blown away by how it plays so differently in different groups. Like if you're in a group where they play it all, you know, where they're war game oriented and they think it's a combat game, and then you start, you know, loking it up, and it's hilarious to watch their faces as you coast along the scoring track with with, uh, no guys on the board. It's, It's quite humorous to me. Blood Rage is great in that it allows for a number of different well-worn strategies based on the cards that you get out. And it is the case that it certainly seems that whatever won the game is overpowered and broken until next game somebody else wins with a different strategy, and that seems overpowered and broken. Yeah, it's much like the feeling I have with Orleans, where you think some of the buildings are totally overpowered, but there's so many of these buildings that it's hard to choose which one it is, and it's fairly even because everyone's going to get one type thing. My only regret about Blood Rage is I wish that the drafting were a little more interactive. I wish there were a little bit more opportunity for hate drafting. I wish it was you cared a little bit more about what other players have in terms of denying them cards. Uh, but other than that, yeah, I, I, I agree. Blood Rage is great. I've never been disappointed. Well, we do get it to the table a lot. I In my morning stupor this morning, I thought of a way that we could play it that I thought would be interesting. Is that to draft all three phases at the beginning of the game? Oh, dear Lord. I know it, it could probably be terrible, but really interesting experiment. I'd, I'd like to try it. Why would you? Oh, wow. All right. Well, because then, you know, because then you'd finally get your your level three and then you could look back at the ones you got from phase one and you could like totally change your strategy knowing what cards were coming up. But you still I think it would be an interesting experiment. I guess. All right. I'm, I'm skeptical. But... It doesn't take long to play Blood Rage, so I, I, it wouldn't it wouldn't be too tiresome, I don't think. Fair enough. Well, I mean, any evening with you is pretty tiresome, so... I, it's I, also true. I, I, I guess I'd want to get out the door earlier, but... So, we also pulled out Empires of the Void 2 again. This is by Ryan Laukat of Red Raven. He just brought it out this year. And once again, I'll note that the name is very, very misleading. It's not really a successor or second edition to Empires of the Void 1. 
The only way in which they share any mechanical similarities, actually, is one of the ways in which I'm, I'm quite disappointed with Empires of the Void 2. In, in the first Empires of the Void, there was this very interesting trade-off about whether to subjugate a race militarily or to ally with them diplomatically. The first way was quick, easy, and simple, well, at least for, from your perspective, and the second way was more difficult but was more long-lasting and gave you ultimately more benefit. And it looked like in Empires of the Void 2, you'd have the same trade-off, but you don't really. In effect, the way that it works is you're very often encouraged by virtue of how the mechanics work and what cards you have to go subjugate a race militarily and then make an alliance with them immediately thereafter, which just, I mean, feels weird and it doesn't have that interesting trade-off that the first one did. All in all, when it comes to Empires of the Void 2, it's fine. I don't really have any strong feelings about it one way or the other. I probably won't ever play it again. I don't think I'd bolt if that were the only option, but I'd definitely suggest something else first. It's a game where nothing really matters too much. You wander around in your world ship, you put a cube here, you control this thing, you get a couple bucks from doing a thing, you build a building. Nothing really feels terribly consequential. The combat is sort of uh, rendered homogenous and kind of painless for everyone involved, so you end up feeling a little bit like you're doing whack-a-mole. I go to this planet you have and I take it from you, but then the moment I leave, you come back and you take it back if you wanted it in the first place. So there's nothing really wrong with it other than uh, a series of missed opportunities, and I'm just going to flag one because I think we both had this feeling the primary action selection mechanism of the game is kind of like role selection. I pick an action and then everyone else can either follow or pass. But to make role selection really sing, you need to have some combination of of some factors, such as having the person selecting the role getting a bonus that the other people don't. That's not present in this game. Having an element of being able to easily look around the table and pick an action to really screw over somebody else because you know they can't or won't follow. You can do that, but it's, it's hampered by the graphic design. It's really hard to look around and see what other people need or want. Uh, and so as a result, again, it just contributes to this sort of homogenous, samey feeling of wandering around and, and doing a bunch of relatively inconsequential actions. I wanted more flavor in the different planets. That's kind of what Ryan Laukat was promising and, and, and hoping to deliver. I didn't get that. And as a result, we're, you're just left with uh, a kind of bland experience. I agree. Like I said, with the action selection, they're all very essential. So eventually everyone's going to pick all of them, so you can just sit back and follow the train along, like you said. And like you said, I really feel that there is a theme there, and it's in this action card deck that you've got. And there's great things going on in there. There's, uh, like, treachery and uh, rebellion and uh, revolution, like uh, two sides that constantly fight each other. But you're using these cards for other things, so you cycle through this deck, and you're just missing all this theme that is in the game that you're just throwing these cards away for combat. And I thought that was a missed opportunity. And personally, if, you know, there's a bit of flavor text on a card explaining that I'm taking sides in Civil War, place one influence, or I'm selling a ship to help uh, a bunch of colonists leave the planet, gain one influence, or aid some refugees, gain one influence. At the end of the day, you know, that's not a really good way to communicate some sort of grand overarching theme, so I agree with you. There's, there's the hint of something there, I just, don't, I just don't see it. I just don't feel it when I'm playing the game. All right, I once again got Coyote to the table. That's a that's an interesting vowel at the end of that word there, Walker. Oh, you gotta you gotta mix it up. So sure. Coyote is a great party card game where everyone is dealt one card that they're not allowed to look at. They hold it up, so all you know every, all the information but your own card. So you add up it's a bunch of numbers from negative ten to twenty on the back of the card. It has the entire deck mix, so you know from the discarded cards what might be left. And you just add up what you think it's at the table. Someone starts the bidding and it goes around and has to go up by at least one. And if you think the person ahead of you has gone over, then you can call Coyote on them. And uh, if you're right, they lose a life. And if you're wrong, they lose a life. For keeping track, that is three different pronunciations so far that Walker has used for Coyote. So this game quickly falls apart when it gets down to two player. Yes, gloriously. It's a game that I enjoy watching more than I enjoy playing, which... And to be fair, I do enjoy playing Coyote a fair bit. It's surprisingly tense for a game that's pretty brainless. There are lots of no-win situations that you can get dealt based on what card you are, what seating position. It's all very arbitrary, and it has player elimination. But, you know, it's quick and stupid and fun, so it's hard to object to it too strongly. Well, I disagree with the with the no-win, right? Because I look at this just like Texas Hold'em, where I think really good players of Texas Hold'em can win without even looking at their cards. Like, if you can play the players on the table, then you have no problem. You control the table, you win at 
Coyote. I think actually the the state you said there, it's not Texas Hold'em, it's Texas Hold'em. True. I think. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I I got something stuck in my throat. You are correct. Yeah, we, we care about pronunciation here a great deal. No, but there are no win situations. If it's the case that, just as an example, even if you're a master, even if you're the best, even if you're cheating, even if you if you've looked in a mirror or something and you've seen what card you have, if the person to your right gets the exact right bid. This then is, you've lost. There's yes. nothing you can do about it because either, well, at that point you bluff. You bid higher and, and you hope that nobody calls you, in which case the person uh, uh, next to you has to has to figure it out. But anyway, I, I will only say one thing about uh, Coyote that, that kind of rankles me. And this is, again, part of the theme that I introduced with Mombasa. The way that it uses First Nations iconography and imagery kind of badly just as window dressing when it's completely unnecessary, I find a little gratuitous and disappointing. True, yeah. There's been many versions of this game, and they want to, I guess it's Indian poker, I guess, is the what it's being based off of, where you hold up one card. Right. The, that's what they go. So I think, and there's been, I think when I looked it up, there's been like four versions, and for whatever reason, they want to keep with this native theme. But. Sure. They, they, they started with, this poker variant started with an unfortunate set of racial imagery, and they just want to keep with it. So, sure. Yeah. Tradition. I, I'm saying that in a game that can be that can indeed be entirely themeless, yeah. it's time to move on, guys. Exactly. I got Sacker Arms back to the table. This is a two-player card battling game. I just want to give it another quick plug because it's not really getting any attention. It's really quick. It's really cool. Every time I play it, I learn something new about the game state, which is often not even true of heavier games. And every time I see people building new and interesting decks, it's fascinating to see new card interactions that I didn't anticipate before. Every session, you get to learn something about your opponent's deck, and every session you get to learn something more about the overall game. And in a two-player card battling game, that's that's really good, especially when it's that quick. So if, you, uh, if, if you're at all interested in that kind of game, and whether you've heard of it or not, I sincerely recommend that you try Sakura Arms if you, if you have the opportunity. All right, that's all I got. You got anything else? No. Shall we move on to the news? Let's move on to the news. All right. Well, let's start with, uh, again, this idea of using culture as a pointless backdrop for your game. This is, I think, probably the funniest controversy of the year. It's not much of a controversy, to be frank, but... So, <clears throat> Rising Sun, which some of you may have in your grubby little hands, some of you may be waiting on like we are up in Canada, raised $4.2 million, but they can't afford to go to the library and open a book. And this is because... There's a stretch goal monster, some sort of uh, uh, angry demon monkey god called Kotahi, which is based entirely on a Wikipedia reference that some Australian dude inserted so as to troll his Kiwi farmer friend. There's a guy in New Zealand who's apparently a farmer. His name is Kotahi Manawa Branford, and somebody inserted his name in the Wikipedia page about Japanese mythological creatures. And when Kulmini or not was burning through stretch goals, lending credence, I think, to the theory that they don't really spend that much time thinking about stretch goals, they just went to a Wikipedia page and found this guy's name and didn't know it was a joke. If they had bothered to open a book, they would not have found any reference to this guy. Uh, but because all they do is surf Wikipedia, that, there we have it. So the cut, this, the cut and paste is real. Yeah, absolutely. This is, I mean, on the one hand, it's obviously very funny, and it's very good, and I will give credit where credit is due, that Simon has had a very good sense of humor about it. They're sending uh, Katahi and his Australian troll friend uh, a free copy of the game. That's great. I've seen interviews of Katahi, and he seems to be taking in very, very good humor himself. But come on, guys, like this, I don't care if your project raises $4.2 million or $4,000. You should take the time to at least open a book. I would say the same thing to Alexander Pfister about the Great Western Trail. I'd say this to Simon. I mean, this is, this is outrageous. Well, if you're, if you're designing a game around a country's culture and, and using their religion as a backdrop, you really should have someone on staff that can open a book. Yeah, 100%. I couldn't agree more. We made fun, uh, well, I made fun of Reiner Knizia for apparently exhaustively researching a theme and then producing a game that's largely themeless. But at least he's not going to commit these kinds of errors. You're not going to commit these kinds of, of gross missteps 
or produce a map where Kyoto's in the wrong place to pick another thing that that Simon can't be bothered to get right. This is this is absurd. And as you say, the stakes are infinitely higher when we're talking about very serious cultural elements like religious beliefs, like deeply held mythology. It's it's utter madness. I do not understand how these designers and these publishers can devote so much work in producing a product and can't be bothered to do even the most basic follow-up. I mean, I would say the same thing about <clears throat> some journalists in, in our particular <clears throat> hobby, but whatever. Setting all that aside, it's... It it also goes to show, I think, for what it's worth, how people talk about how you know some games are are heavy in theme. That's usually the user bringing their expectations to the experience because so often it's just so much cobbled together nonsense. Because let me tell you, there was no overarching vision of somebody passionate about Japanese mythology who gave us Katahi. This was a cut and paste job. This was a rush hack job, and uh, I'm you know. I'm not necessarily going to say that that speaks ill for the game overall, but it definitely speaks ill for their attention to detail. All right, let's put that to rest. Give me my copy now. Um, I have Monera by Zoc Games. It's going to be, what pulled me into this one is it's going to be a cooperative dexterity game. And it looked really cool. So I know we're used to catacombs and castles, but I don't play that many cooperative dexterity games. Yeah, I've I've enjoyed every co-op dexterity game I've ever played. Well, you know, um, Flick 'em Up, Dead of Winter, uh, Flick Ships. Uh, we're we're both also again absurdly looking forward to Seal Team Flicks. Oh yes, we we love us the dexterity games. We love us the co-op games, and uh, co-op dexterity games often have some rather clever elements to them. I also enjoyed uh, Haba's Castle Knights, which is also a dexterity game, largely for children. But uh, I've been twelve, going on sixty, most of my life, so that's okay. And, uh, yeah, it looks great. uh, Monero looks like uh, Villa Paletti, uh, which was, if anyone remembers, this is a game that won the SDJ the year that Puerto Rico was released and people on the internet lost their minds. But it's hard to go wrong with a pretty co-op dexterity game in my book, so let's let's hope that it, it plays as well as it looks. Another bit of news, uh, possibly light at the end of the tunnel. Of course, it could be an on- oncoming train for the ongoing Myth debacle. Myth is a game put out by Megacon Games a few years ago, widely regarded to be borderline unplayable in its initial release. There was a further controversy about how a lot of the early glowing reviews for the game had been reviewed by people taught the game by the designers, which is always a bad sign. They then had a second Kickstarter, which raised almost a million bucks, and then there was a prolonged period of radio silence where no one got anything and no one got any news, and all we heard from Megacon was them firing their community manager. And then there was the news that they couldn't say anything because there was a non-disclosure agreement because they were selling the property. Yeah. Anyway, apparently, again, this is all rumor and conjecture, the sale's done, And the long-suffering people waiting their myth stuff, I'm not one of them because I don't have a dog in this fight, will be getting news sometime next month. Or not. Who knows? Who knows? Kickstarter, fun. Indeed. All right, for my last bit, I usually pass over something like this, but the miniatures and the name look so awesome. Starship Samurai. And the other reason I'm excited is because it's by Plat Hat. They've brought out some great products, so I'm hoping they're going to do something with this. It sounds amazing. When Walker first told me about this, I kind of rolled my eyes because Plaid Hat and Isaac Vega have never really hit for me. I liked Summoner Wars, but that was about it. And then I saw the cover for this game. Dear Lord, it looks like pure madness. Complete and utter madness. It's going to be amazing. Oh, I will be amazed. I, I, I imagine, well, I've already been amazed, but in what sense the game will be amazing? <laughs> exactly. Oh, boy. How? All right, so that is the news and why it really doesn't matter. We're on to our feature game, which is Feast for Odin. It is a great worker placement game. What do you do in Feast for Odin? Well, believe it or not, there are over 60 actions that you can take with your workers, and these actions can take up to one to four workers. You're going to use these actions to get tiles or more boards and boats, and then you can upgrade these tiles, which are going to place over negative victory points that you started the game off with in a crazy Tetris-like jigsaw puzzle. But don't forget to feed the Vikings as well, because it's a Uwe Rosenberg. Of course, you've got to feed your people. Love it. And then you do this seven turns and you're done. That is Feast for Odin. Feast for Odin is indeed Ul Rosenberg's latest medium weight worker placement game until his next medium weight worker placement game, which of course is right on the heels of his last hit medium weight worker placement game. I say this derisively despite the fact that I I, I think I've enjoyed all 
his worker placement games that I've played. Some of them, I haven't loved all of them, but I've never played one of his games figuring, ah, well, that wasn't any good. Which is something to, something to be said, especially in a, a field that he arguably, you know, the modern worker placement game is more or less defined by Agricola, which he released over 10 years ago. And I remember when Agricola first came out, and it was really the first big hit worker placement thing. It wasn't the first worker placement game, but it was it, it definitely was more popular, helped popularize the genre in a way that, you know, Kalis never did. And uh, I gotta say that this is probably my second favorite Ua Rosenberg game after Agricola. I do still love Agricola, it's my favorite, but A Feast for Odin is surprisingly fun. I did not expect to enjoy it because of this spatial element that you talked about, be, being made to fit different pieces of cardboard on your mat so as to cover more spaces strategically. But the reason, one of the reasons why I enjoy it as much as I do, and this will dovetail neatly into one of its great strengths, is the extent to which you need to worry about proper spatial placement of those goods is really up to you. On the board that you're given, you start off with more or less a grid, but not all spaces are equal. Some spaces you definitely want to cover. Some spaces you don't necessarily want to cover, but you'd rather surround completely, and then they'll give you bonuses every round. But if you're an idiot like I am who can't be bothered and you're not really good at fitting shapes together, screw it. You can ignore that. Just dump all the things onto the board in whatever pell-mell pattern you want. Uh, Move on and focus on other things. And that's because the overall strength of A Feast for Odin is it's probably the most sandboxy Euro game that I've played in the past few years. There are so many different things you can do all of which are rewarding, all of which are fun to do, and all of which dovetail into multiple victory conditions. Yeah, I agree with all those points. That covers pretty well what I was going to say. It's as you're playing, like when I play Feast for Odin, I never feel frustrated or handcuffed. You always have all these many different ways you can do things. You can be a whaler, you can be a raider, you can uh, farm things, you can breed animals, you can... uh, manufacture goods, buy goods, trade goods, You your choices are fairly endless. So you never feel as though you're being blocked or anything else. And you need a great part with that spatial element is that there's no action that you have to take to put these pieces on your board. Uh, you can do it at your leisure. Once you've finally placed them there, of course, you can't move them around. But the fact that you don't have to like, oh, it's my turn to do this and you got to quickly put it on. No, you can you know, figure out exactly what you want to do. And that was a great design choice, in my opinion. I agree. I think a lesser designer might have made placing those tokens as an additional action, just as a way to kind of introduce more game into what's going on. But really, it would have been interference for the sake of interference. And Feast for Odin, although very, very smooth, is still a very challenging game to maximize your score, but you never really feel like the game system is fighting you. And that's just an example of how the game facilitates things. You place things when you want to, and it's it, you're, you're maximum freedom for doing that. On that topic of freedom, though, I think that, that highlights a couple of, of key distinctions. I talked about how, you know, A Feast for Odin is just one of many, many worker placement games that Ua has, has released. And I, I like to categorize them into two rough groups. There are the tight ones. This is These are the ones where you really have to struggle to get off the ground. You need to struggle to feed your family or feed your workers. And then there are the loose ones, which tend to be characterized by much less pressure from the game system to feed people, a much greater latitude in how your goods work, uh, You know, the presence of wild goods that can be traded in for other things. And this distinction to me is highlighted by Agricola versus Caverna. In Agricola, feeding your family is difficult. In Caverna, it's there, but it's really, really easy to do. And there are these wild resources called rubies, and you can trade them in for whatever the, whatever the heck you want. A Feast for Odin is squarely in that latter category. You do have to feed your workers, and it's a thing you have to take care of, but it's not a huge pressure. You never feel like you're struggling under the gun. Personally, I like that feeling of struggling to feed my family. Uh, and I sometimes wish that A Feast for Odin had a little bit more of that that feeling to it, but I realize that's not for everyone. No. Like me. I hate it. Like, hate it. Like, that's what the game you're playing. You're playing Feed Your People. It's like, I could be having fun. I could be enjoying these other game mechanisms. I could be, you know, enjoying myself. No, but I, I'm frustrated and I'm worried about my poor people dying. Yeah, no, hard pass. Walker, you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. No. <laughs> no, I do not. Walker likes to subsist off Viking government handouts. He doesn't believe in hard work, diligence, and medieval farming. No, you just got to steal it from other people. Oh, okay. That's well, the that, way to do it. Sure, that, that's another way to do it. So let, let's talk a little bit about the raiding and the whaling, because it uses dice. Dice in a Euro game. I know, right? The internet went crazy. 
it's well, it's not even just in a Euro game because lots of Euro games use dice, but this is the first time that that Ua has used dice in uh, his in any of his major designs. True, but there's many ways to mitigate it, and I think it just puts that little extra whimsical. I don't know. <laughs> whimsical you this little extra whim, whimsical thing into the game and i think it's i i don't mind at all i think I, I don't i don't i don't disagree i don't think whimsy is a bad word to use i think what what happened was uva had had this um mechanism of quote unquote adventuring in caverna and everyone's reaction was the same which was this doesn't feel like adventuring at all it's just another version of shopping it's like i send this guy to this space and he i can come back with like a cow or something based on the some stat of of the worker but introducing the die rolls, even though there are lots of ways to mitigate it and it's not a huge element of the game, it really helps the riskiest endeavors, namely whaling and raiding, feel a little bit more like those things. It helps it be a little bit more thematic. You know, and, and let, let's be frank, it's kind of fun and exciting to see if the dice are going to help or hose you. Uh, n- now, not all the time. And if you don't want to bother with that stuff, you don't have to. Again, this is a game that's wide open and presents multiple paths to you. If you don't want to mess with the dice, you don't have to. You can avoid them entirely. But I know a, a number of, you know, very thinky Euroheads who hate dice and hate randomness but are willing to accept it in A Feast for Odin just because it's, you know, relatively well implemented and relatively thematic. Speaking of theme, let's talk about the theme of this game and how I feel as though all of the goods, how they progress into each other really makes sense, how some actions are harder to do, therefore taking more workers, uh, how rating works, how... Uh, the spatial elements of some of the things work on your board, uh, how immigration works, how uh, when you Im- uh, change your boats into immigration, they go up onto your feast track where you feed your people, thereby making that track shorter. He's got an entire other book dedicated to theme. I think he did a great job integrating everything else. I didn't even talk about the occupations, how the occupations, how they're uh, titled and how they... Uh, the mechanism of each occupation cards of what resources you need and how they work, how it is really neat how he's done everything. This is an example of how to do a Euro game theming right. It's not a heavily thematic experience, but it's got those little touches that differentiate it from the thousand other medium weight Euro worker placement games, among them some of Ua's games. Yes, there are the professions, there's the whaling, there's the rating, and that extra almanac that book full of historical detail just shows that on the design team, it was a priority to make sure that there was an understanding of the context in which these things happened historically. Now, this also lets Ua Rosenberg have his moments of, of genuine whimsy where he includes beans in the game. But in the almanac, he acknowledges, yeah, Vikings didn't really eat beans, but I just wanted beans in my game. When you do the historical research, when it's clear that you've boned up on the facts, you can get away with stuff like that instead of just copying and pasting something from Wikipedia. So I agree with you that it's it's very thematic. Uh, he also talks about resource exhaustion because apparently one of the things that drove Viking raiding and expansion was resource exhaustion. They were in a very mountainous terrain and it wasn't very e- it was very difficult to get new sources of wood. That kind of sort of comes through a bit, not nearly so much as in a game like Antiquity where the entire game is about resource exhaustion. But again, it's a nice little touch. There are other ways to get wood. You're never really going to run out, but... It, gets a little bit scarcer. So at the end of the day, the theme is very, very nice, and it does interact with the game more than you might think, although not necessarily to a heavy, heavy extent. But you mentioned emigration. Let's talk a little bit about that, because chatter on the interwebs, and indeed chatter locally, uh, you hear a lot of sweeping statements like, emigration is the you know the overwhelmingly dominant strategy. It's the best way to win. What are your thoughts on that? I don't, I don't believe it's true. I think there's that uh, for first-time players, they see the huge jump on the ships. Like the trading ships, I think, go from 5 to 18, I think. And the rating ships go from 8 to 21. So when they see this huge jump in victory points, they they think that would be the best strategy to go. I've seen it almost work, and I tried it even myself. And I have had mixed views on it, for sure. So your basic opinion is if you can't pull it off, then no one can, right? Obviously. Right, okay, that's fair enough. I agree with you. I think the strength of emigration is often exaggerated. I hate it when people, after a game or two, make these sweeping generalizations about large, complex systems like A Feast for Odin. And I've heard people talk about, you know, emigration is obviously the way to go. I personally almost never do it. Sometimes I do well, sometimes I do poorly, but I've never I've never looked over at somebody emigrating like crazy and envied them considerably their their freedom because mostly what emigration gets you is in-game points 
and uh, a little bit of relief from feeding your people. But as we've already discussed, feeding your people is not a huge challenge. And if you bother to go to emigration, it costs you points now. It costs you the opportunity cost of having a boat. Boats are very useful. I love using my boats in the Feast for Odin. Why would I want to give up my boats? Why would I let these people take my boat and leave? They should stay and work my boat and pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Oh, sorry, sorry. That was... uh, I've been reading a little bit too much Phil Eklund libertarian pamphlets, uh, so uh, I apologize. We, 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 we shall move on from that topic. Cough. One of the things that we haven't talked about yet, which is actually what I love most uh, about the game and what I love to use my boats for the most, is colonization. And this is when you take on an additional board. Uh, from the middle of the table, so you've got your own, you've got your starting board, but there are a whole bunch of other kinds of boards you can get, and one of them is is founding new colonies, which is kind of like this entirely separate board, and it feels an awful lot like an investment because it's usually at the start worth a whack of negative points. You just start out and you're just taking on debt, but by virtue of possibly getting extra income and or possibly getting extra bonuses or things like that, the challenge is then to make it worth it. And I love that challenge of, of now having additional boards to manage and getting out of this hole that I've dug for myself. And it's probably my favorite way to play. But as I say, given the latitude in Feast for Odin, there are a lot of different ways to do it. Speaking of latitude, this is let's go. We've hit all my positive points except for, oh, I want to hit one more positive point. The when Because like I said, some actions takes one, two, three, or four workers. When you take the three and four worker actions, you actually get an additional bonus. I think that's a great touch, right? When you take the three worker action, you get to draw a new occupation. And when you do a four player action, you get to play one of these occupations. So I love that little touch. Yeah, the trade-off between little actions and big actions is great. I agree. All right, on to the negative points, which is the teaching huge learning curve. Like there's so much, like you said, all these boards, hut boards, house boards, more islands, your giant board, over 60 different actions to take when you get all this out onto the table it is very daunting for new players and also even to teach it i've taught it five to five different people this week i played it three times and uh i think it's gone well i agree with you normally when i teach a worker placement game it's very simple you explain the turn structure which is usually pretty straightforward and in a feast for odin the turn structure is uh, not the simplest in the world but it's easy enough to follow And then you typically go over all the action spaces and what they do. And in a game like Agricola, you can do that because you start with a relatively small number of action spaces. In A Feast for Odin, you start with 61. And it's just not feasible to go through each space. And it's also not feasible to explain the core set of iconography and then just gesture to the board and say, eh, they all do what they say they do. It's really the case that, in a way, you have to kind of pre-select what you're going to share with new players, which is a daunting task. I hate, 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 hate telling new players how to play a game. I'd rather, you know, I'll warn them of obvious pitfalls. If I see them making a move that's grotesquely stupid, and I know them not to be grotesquely stupid, so I never have to worry about this one. I hate when you talk to me like that. Yeah. Um, Then I can say, well, you know, are you aware of this interaction? And just to remind you about how this works in the game and so forth. Uh, I, I really resent it when rules explainers are like, look, for your first game, here's what you should do. Ignore all this stuff. Focus on just this one thing. And it, that does such a disservice to A Feast for Odin because of how different people with different preferences will pursue different strategies. But unfortunately, when teaching the game, some you kind of have to make editorial decisions about what to address. Because if you just, not only is it unreasonable to go through all 61, people's eyes are going to glaze over and they're just going to forget and that completely undoes the point of a rules explanation. So it's a daunting task that is much more challenging than it needs to because, you know, it's a very smooth playing game. Once you've played it once or twice, it's a little bit like Race for the Galaxy in that way. They're not similar games and they're very, of different, very different weights. But Race for the Galaxy, once you've played a couple times, is one of the smoothest playing games you could ever experience. And in Feast for Odin is also very smooth playing. But th- those initial couple games where you're just drowning in a sea of action spaces and iconography, you're right, it is daunting. Oh, he's... Mr. Rosenberg was nice enough to put them in all in categories, so you can sort of teach just the categories, and maybe they can they can suss out. And usually, when it's a new player, I told them just to ignore the extra islands. I know you said you shouldn't, you know, handcuff them, but I think it's a great for the first game just to you know concentrate on their own board. And... I, re- I respect that. That's a, that's a reasonable call. All right, what else do I have? I have the price tag of a hundred and ten dollars. That's what games cost now, man. I agree, and I think. It is a big box, and this box is full. I appreciate the fact that it comes with sorting trays. 
Oh, it, for, for all the goods, for sure. If you look at uh, some of his other games, less so for, for things like Agricola. I don't think that everything needs a custom in, insert or foam core, laser etched, Bakelite, whatever the hell. But if you look at a game like Aura at, Lo- Aura at Labora, which is one of his previous worker placement games that I also quite like, it's probably my third favorite, Rosenberg, it has dozens of different types of goods and no way to sort them out the box. It's one of those, you know, I, I, I have a Plano or type organizer for maybe half a dozen of my games total, and it is one of them because you need it. Fortunately, when designing this game, either Rosenberg right from the outset or eventually realized, yeah, there's no way I can just ship this on punch boards and say deal with it yourself. So it comes with, they're actually quite like wargaming counter trays, to be honest. Uh, and it's a 100% necessity, and I'm, you know, kudos to the, the the publishers for putting it in. Yeah, now that you say this, I I agree. I can't even think of what you would do if you didn't have those trays. Like, can you, like yeah. you, it would be unplayable. Absolutely. All right, the other negative I had, I think we both agree on this part, and it's it's pretty. Don't well, tell me what I think, Walker. I'm sorry, sir. And you can't tell you can't you can't tell you, me what to I do. I can't think what you think. Um, Rage Against the Machine told me that I don't have to do what you tell me. So do what you like is the solo play element of this game is that there's very little player interaction. It's very, and the only one you, the only thing you could think of would be the normal worker placement where you're going to be taking spaces from people that they would normally take, but there's 60 other spaces that they can choose from. When you're playing this game, you really need a couple of different strategies to work on at the same time. So if someone takes this space, then you can just go somewhere else. And believe it or not, when you're playing with four players, you put on add on boards that let you, take actions that someone has already taken so he's made it very easy not to block the only other uh solo part of it that i thought would be that in order to get the first player marker you have to be the last player to play workers so as i said before you can play different number of workers so people are going to run out before other people so you can do a bunch of one worker actions in order to be the last player to get the first player marker that is the only thing i can think of to interact with other players yeah, this game is multiplayer solitaire hardcore. What's bizarre about it is that, like many of Rosenberg's other games, you can play A Feast for Odin in an actual solitaire mode, and it's fine. You know, if you like playing solitaire Euro games, it's it's about as good as any other. But what's striking about the solitaire mode of A Feast for Odin is it feels like there's more blocking than there is in the multiplayer version. In the multiplayer version, I can do more or less whatever I want, more or less whenever I want. It's truly rare that that there's any friction from other players. But in the solitaire version, you can only take an action space every other round. So if I take an action in round one, I can't take it again in round two. And that's far more blocking than you're ever going to see in a multiplayer version. So I actually feel like it's more of a multiplayer version uh, when I'm playing solo, which is bizarre. Again, some this isn't necessarily too much of a problem based on taste, but I wish there was a little bit more interaction between the players. The other thing, the only other thing I want to add is that I really feel it's a great game. It's one of these things where it's tons of information, but like we were talking about before in other games where people shut down and concentrate on one little small thing. I think even the small things in this game are very rewarding and fun. Like I've played this many times where I know I'm losing, but I just enjoy what I'm doing. I'm raiding, I'm doing some whaling, I'm you know, getting all my bonuses. I and I really just forget about the points in this game. I agree completely. It's always a fun time. I've had great success introducing it to people who thought they wouldn't like it. You know, they see the action spaces and they immediately tune out or get intimidated by the sheer number and size of the bits. But it's been very, very successful. Uh, I look forward to playing it more going on in the future. It's a great success. And that is Feast for Odin. All right, on to our topic of the day, which is apps. And whether you like it or not, I'm going to break this into three. I was going to ask you, but I really don't care what you think. So the three different categories for apps today are going to be companion apps, such as scoring apps, first player apps, And then we have our overlord apps, which have taken over one of the players or in these one versus many have taken the, the side of the big evil overlord. And then our third and final category is going to be app driven games that you have to have the app. It totally drives the game. You have no choice, but to use the app. Is that okay with you, sir? That's exactly how I have things to be Walker. Good stuff. All right. So onto the first part is our companion apps. And the games which I'm going to use in this one are like our Sentinels of the Multiverse scoring app, the Werewolf, you know, put out the roles app, scoring things like scoring ones like for, what one do I usually use for scoring? I don't use any anymore, I don't think. Oh, there was a great Seven Wonders scoring app. 
and how Choosy, gr- the first player, the first player choosing app. How great of an app could it have been if it was for Seven Wonders? It was pretty good. Like that, those science cards, you know, figuring out what you know what they're worth is is very uh, <clears throat> cough. Go ahead. <laughs> so, to my mind, these companion apps, these helper apps, are very much like player aids. When they're helpful, they're really helpful. But I often find that they're grotesquely overused. It seems like there are some people who are very firmly of the opinion that if there's any player aids to be had on BoardGameGeek, they're going to print out five copies of them and laminate them and include them whether the game needs or wants them or not. And I know that this is true because I trade lots of games and very often you end up with a game, either I've played it before or I know enough about it, and it's you know full of player aids, and the game really doesn't need it. And sometimes player aids get a little obtrusive. Because it's you're better off just remembering two or three things rather than having those two or three things buried in a summary of all the rules everywhere. So the things you need to reference can't be found. So there's an art to making a good player aid. And I find that shoddy player aids often detract from the experience. But I often find this true of companion apps as well. So some of them I don't mind. If you want to have an app read a script for explaining the interactions of timing for roles in Werewolf, that's fine. People have been working off of scripts for Werewolf since Werewolf was invented. You know, if you run a very, very complicated game with half a dozen special roles that have different timing issues. But then again, Werewolf was originally a moderated game, and so the moderator had to work those things out. So if you want to have an app take care of that, fine. That's fine. Yeah, I like that in the Werewolf, right? Because it's like, it's a nice, I was going to say monotone, but it's a very dictating tone. So the person who's running the game can definitely participate. He doesn't have to worry about anything. He doesn't have to worry about any heighten in his voice or missing anything or giving anything away while he's going through the paces. So I think it's very helpful in, in games like Werewolf. Mark it down, listeners. Walker is in favor of dictators. Walker is pro... I would just like to say this does not represent the editorial views of So Very Wrong About Games. We are not pro-dictator as an editorial board. Walker's political views are his own. I've, I've been called a dictator before, but yeah. That was the worst thing that anyone has ever said, ever. So there are apps, like for Meeple Circus, for example, it's fine. It just plays a music tune. Uh, Space Alert has a pretty good app that helps with the audio tracks there. Fine, whatever. Uh, especially when apps just duplicate what would have been done by something else in, in a literal way. Like if you have a kitchen timer or a timer on your phone, I don't really care which. There are cases, though, when I think that people, again, make use of to these apps when they don't really don't have to. And you mentioned Choosy, which is a, an app where everyone, it's it's spelt C-H-W-A-Z-I, and everyone puts their finger on a phone and it'll select one of them at random. And it's cute and it's fine and it's got little sound effects and, you know, the phone vibrates and someone's fingers highlight or whatever. Uh, but I often find, I, the number of times where I found myself at a table and someone says, okay, well, we've got to choose a start player. By the time someone... This is going to sound ridiculous, but by the time someone hauls out their phone, opens their phone, unlocks the screen, finds the app, opens the app, the app loads and puts it on the table, you can select a random start player usually about six or seven times, no exaggeration. If there are score markers in the game, if everyone has workers, all you need to do is take one from everybody, shake them up, and pull one at random. It takes a fraction of the time. If you really, really love the blinking lights and sound effects, then might I suggest that board gaming is not necessarily your go-to hobby? It's... I, I don't understand why people are like, no, 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 don't shake up the things. I, I, I have an app. Well, look, if the app is longer and more cumbersome than some alternate version, why on earth are you doing it that way? That's because he, people have paid so much money for the devices, Mark, and they want to play on their phone. This is a more general point, but look, I was an early adopter of, of handheld technologies like this. I had a, a PDA back in the day when they were still, well, not quite when they were called Palm Pilots, but immediately thereafter, I had a Palm device, I had a, a Pocket BC, I've had all these things. And people looked at me like I was crazy when I initially had them, uh, you know, back in the, 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 the mid or late 90s. And they said, oh, you know, is that supposed to organize your life? And I'd say, well, no, this has all of the collected works of Emmanuel Kant on it, so I'm able to, to cross-reference thing things. I do use it to keep track of things like phone numbers and dates, sure. It also runs a couple of, of games that I can play on the subway, and it also has music and whatever. And now, I am I feel like I'm the Luddite, because even though, yes, I've got a smartphone, and yes, it's loaded up with a whole bunch of apps, very often when people are pulling out these apps to improve, quote-unquote, their analog board gaming experience, it strikes me as a cumbersome waste of damn time. I agree, but... We're going to fight on the Sentinels of the Multiverse scoring app. Yeah, yeah, okay. Let's talk about that. I, like I said, it's one of the whole reasons why, not the whole reason, but one of the reasons I looked at a tablet was this Sentinels of the Multiverse 
crazy number of chits. We played it together, and you did not want to use the scoring app. But we usually put it in the middle of the table, and I think it's a great way to keep track of you know all these you know about thirteen sometimes different things that all have hit points, and it's an easy way, and it tells you who has the most, who has the least, and it's a, a very helpful app. I th- I feel if it was genuinely the case that it was in the middle of the table, such that everyone around the table can read all the information easily and or alter all the information easily, fine, I'd have no problem with it. I really wouldn't. But it is the case that I invariably find, and this is going to be a recurring theme for a lot of these apps, that it ends up being the the job of one person to maintain and update the information on the app. And that's exactly what happened when we did it. And as a result, if I want to know how many hit points my character has or how many hit points some other character has, I always have to ask the same person. And this has two negative effects. Number one, it has a negative effect on me because I feel I feel like I'm bl- navigating blind. And number two, that other person who's managing the screen is spending the entire time interacting with the screen rather than necessarily the other players. They're pulled out of their play experience, and it also puts a whole bunch of, of workload on them. When you play with tokens is, you know, there's a certain amount of fiddliness involved. Absolutely. I'm not, I'm never going to say that, that dealing with Sentinels is ever clean if you're dealing with the tokens, but at least all the information is there publicly available. And there's the natural expectation and the inevitable result is that everyone manages their own pile and everyone collectively manages the information load. And then there's that extra tactile reinforcement of whenever you manipulate the objects to modify the results, that helps reinforce what the results are. And so it lessens the cognitive load of tracking all this information. Makes you realize you're losing something if you're actually losing it. Precisely. Absolutely right. All right, let's move on. Well, that's That was our talk of helper apps. Helper apps. Now onto the Overlord apps. And what I, how I wanted to start this one up was talking about one versus many games in general. And how they usually progressed, much like Zombicide or uh, uh, Imperial Assault or Descent, how characters quickly, the game wants the characters to quickly advance and get more stuff and roll more dice. And usually how they deal with the Overlord players, they just let him do the same thing. They add more dice, add more stuff, so everyone's just getting this creep. So it's not, it's not usually anything too clever, right? It's just getting more of the same. And so what these apps do is put everyone on the same team. So it doesn't feel so much like that, right? Because everyone's fighting against the the game. So when everyone creeps up, it's usually all a good thing. And usually the app just throws in some other things where it just doesn't feel as though it's just this massive creep. And it doesn't look, it now it doesn't feel like everyone's picking on the one player. So if, if the table's doing well, then everyone's doing well. If uh, something bad happens, then it's a shared experience, right? Instead of just one person getting beat up on. What I think you're doing is basically saying that you have a preference for co-op games versus 1v-many games, which I think is a perfectly legitimate preference. When it comes to 1v-many games, there's really only one that I quite enjoy, and that's Level 7 Omega Protocol. I think it did it reasonably well. And one of the reasons why 1v-many games tend to be unsatisfying is precisely the social dynamic that you're talking about but it's also generally the case that in games like that it's not very fun to be the overlord and so yes in a game that was designed that way like descent like imperial assault if it's the case that the that an app can automate that so no one is forced to play that role that they don't want to then that's great more power to them i think it's fabulous the only disappointment i have is that very often I feel like the app is just replicating a deck of event cards, and sometimes not even particularly well. Let me just give a couple of examples. When you're looking at a game like Doomrock or Gloomhaven or even Gears of War, which is a relatively uh, older design, they show you how much texture and nuance a deck of AI cards can really have. And when I see an app generating an AI for a game like Imperial Assault, my expectation is that it's going to do something new and novel and cute that a deck of event cards wouldn't be able to do. So far, I haven't seen that experience. I don't have a lot of experience with those apps, to be frank, but so far I've been generally disappointed because I feel like I've seen just as interesting results, if not better results, through a simple little small deck of AI cards in Assault on Doomrock or Gloomhaven. True. In their defense, though, these... In the case of Doomrock and Gloomhaven, these games were designed around those AI decks, where in Descent and Imperial Assault, these were, you know, this app was brought out after the fact, so it had to be incorporated 
after the fact. So some of the game mechanisms, they didn't want to like completely redesign the whole game. So they sort of had to just shoehorn it in type thing. Sure. Uh, allow me just to put in a little plug. I've talked about Gloomhaven for uh, the companion app that I use for Gloomhaven, which is the which is called the Gloomy Companion. What it does is, and this is this is what I want in an app to help facilitate an experience. It just reduces the cognitive load of managing things. In Gloomhaven, you basically have to cross-reference every AI card with the core stats of a monster. An AI card will tell you move plus two, and then you look at the move stat of the monster. It's three, so then you figure, okay, the move value is five. And that's not an especially complicated thing to do in Gloomhaven, but when you have to do it half a dozen times over the course of a single activation, it can start getting really, really, really tiresome. Gloomy Companion, what it does is you just hit hit a button for the AI deck of whatever monster group you have, and it just says move five. It doesn't say move plus two or anything like that. It just tells you that they all move a certain value. And that's an example of a companion app that I will absolutely use. But by the same token, for every Gloomhaven, uh, for every Gloomy Companion I've seen, I've seen like three or four other Gloomhaven Companion apps that want to be more like the Sentinels Tracker or want to be more like the Imperial uh, Assault app because it tries to automate too many things. And in that process of maintaining all this greater degree of information, it's now centralized. People can't share it. If I want to know how uh, whether a skeleton's almost dead, I want to be able to look at the table rather than ask the one person who's curating all this nonsense. Furthermore, whenever it's time to activate monsters, I want them to just be able to tap the button and have it go, or pull a card and have it go, rather than say, okay, wake the screen up from sleep, page through the three or four pages that the thing is keeping track of that I don't care about to finally get to the result. I To sum up, I want these apps to reduce the friction, not increase the friction. Yeah, I have to agree with that. That if I had to rate all the apps that I've seen so far, the Gloomy app was by far the best one that I've used. I, I wasn't sure. When you start an app for a mission, do you put in the mission number and it automatically populates the monsters or do you have to put in the monsters yourself? You can do it either way. You can tell it the mission level and it will automatically do things, including uh, some uh, boss monsters. Monsters that are just souped up versions of normal ones. They'll give them uh, the separate stats sometimes. Or... Uh, this is especially valuable for the solitaire scenarios because the solitaire scenarios I don't think have been input into Gloomy Companion. You can just custom make your, your monster groups. I want level two skeletons and level four ancient artillery and whatever. Awesome. All right, so that is our Overlord apps. Anything else you want to add to that part? No, let's get on to the good stuff. All right, app-driven games. I have XCOM, First Martian, Alchemist, Rising 5, which is a game I'm really enjoying playing lately. You haven't played it yet, Walker. Lies. Why are you... All the cool kids are playing Rising 5. No, 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 look. The goal is to lie so that we get review copies, not lying that we already oh, have a game because then they're not going to send us free games. Gotcha, gotcha. I'm going to edit all this out because this makes us look really bad. But if you keep <laughs> saying these things, they're not going to send us. Again. What you want to do is say that everything else they've done has been perfect and that you were sure that Rising oh. 5 will be perfect, but and, you haven't played it yet. And then tell everyone to buy it. Yes. Buy, 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 buy. Yeah, but that's the last stage. Okay, that, that's sorry. The, okay. All right. Credibility restored. All right. So these app-driven games, uh, the only thing I'm going to say, these, I don't think anyone's, any of them have really busted out yet. Like, I haven't seen any on the top 10 list. Uh, I'm really looking forward to more coming out, but what, do you, what are your thoughts on these completely app-driven games so far? Well, I, I, I'd like to just start with a question. What is it that you like about them? What are you, what are you hoping happens? Well, I'm, I'm thinking there's a level of, of hidden information that they haven't really hit on yet. But I and I think it's mostly because they've all focused around just using one device. And I think eventually, when it becomes more apparent that everyone has a device and everyone will have one in front of them, and you can be more stuff hidden. I always go back to the same example when I talk about this kind of stuff, which is Jagged Alliance, the first Jagged Alliance video game, where when you could get it to work multiplayer you're all sent into the scenario with completely different objectives. Like, you know, I could be, you know, going to find some drugs and Joe over there is being sent in just to kill one member of my team. And Susie's coming in. She's just supposed to be coming in to find this hostage and bring her out. And then the objective has things that it's going to throw you on top of that. So there's all this hidden information. I think the app apps can really help with this kind of gameplay. And 
it was about two years ago, a German company said they were going to be bringing out like a war game where so you can do all your purchases of units and hidden movement and send each other messages and make diplomatic, you know, deals all on a device. As long as they do it easy enough and it's not too complicated, I think we're looking in, looking forward to some great future board games, I'm hoping. I agree with you. I think there's lots of room for potentially busting open the design space. I have yet to see it. I have yet to see an app do anything that a deck of event cards couldn't do uh, or shouldn't have been replicated there. Because again, I, I, I find that very often I don't have a problem with people spending their lives in front of screens. I mean, that's the way that I was raised. That's the way I continue to live for, to a large extent. But when I'm playing a board game, when I'm engaged in any social activity, I don't want everyone stuck in, in front of their own screens for two reasons. Number one, it is fundamentally alienating. You know, they're cutting themselves off from uh, the, the the rest of the people around the table. And the mere fact of one person looking on, into a screen, it's almost like yawning. There's an almost physiological response. Everyone else starts bringing out their phone. And suddenly we're not having a shared experience anymore. And suddenly they don't know it's their damn turn, so put away their freaking phone so they can actually take their damn turn so the game can progress. And it's just... So as a result, I want an app experience that heightens the board game experience rather than just makes it closer to being a computer game. And so far, the only one that I've played that I think really does a good job is Unlock, which is that escape room game. Oh, sorry, I said it wrong. It's not Unlock, it's Unlock! And it's a really unobtrusive app. You only interface with it when you need it to do something that a deck of cards can't do. Like, for example, know whether you have the correct combination to a specific combination lock. And so it's great. Most of the time you're messing with cards, you're manipulating the cards, you're all looking at the cards together. It maintains that physicality of trying to find a hidden picture or hidden number on the drawing on a card. And then the app... You just interface with the app when you think you need to progress to a combination lock or something or something like that, or to dispense a hint, which it also does contextually very well. And I really think that they knew that the job uh, was to say, this app is only going to do things that the deck of cards can't. And I wish that more games would approach things that way. When I played First Martians, I was very, very unimpressed with the fact that it was basically just a not a particularly good deck of event cards or... Uh, other games where, again, I feel like AI, de- just a deck of AI cards have, have done much better things. Parenthetically, and this is a minor gripe and perhaps unfair uh, to hold hold against them, they also just wreck your battery. I'm, I don't, when playing a board game, I don't necessarily want my phone to die and have it to heat up to a million degrees in the process. Well, unfortunately, we're in this little niche market, so uh, we're not going to get our apps optimized after the fact, unfortunately. It's true. I just want to make quick other points, like Dead of Winter... They have their Crossroads deck that they've made an app for, right? So they can add more cards whenever they feel like it. And it's been free so far. So that's I find that kind of interesting. And it, it automatically shuffles the deck. It's ready to go. You put it on the table. And you're going to get cards that you've never seen before because they're adding cards without you even knowing. That's a good point. Now, how about creating a sense of tension? When I think about apps, I think that's the only thing I've seen apps do. I know you can almost create the same sort of atmosphere with a timer but i think games like xcom and there's an app for a dice game called fuse i think they've both done a great job of creating a sense of tension that the board that the the designer wanted in the game sure Uh, space alert does the same thing with with its audio tracks and and all that and again if it's just a question of replicating a timer or playing a sound file or whatever, something that you just hit play and leave it on the table and don't interact with again, that's fine. I've got no problems with that whatsoever. And I've been using an app to play Space Alert uh, ever since I discovered them. But that's just as a substitute for a CD. So, yeah, Next thing I want to try is apparently uh, the the solo games. The What's the Scythe? Oh, the, the, the uh, Atoma. Atoma. Apparently there's some, there's really some good Atoma apps, so... I'm going to give those a try because they sound like they do a great job. To a certain extent, I think that's just because the Automa systems are, sorry, the Automata when when pluralized. A lot of them are just not as clean as they want to be. As I say, I played a lot of solo games, both Euro games and war games and and, and, and other kinds of things. And uh, I, I've been generally unimpressed with the Automata. I think they're just a little more grit than is necessary. So, yeah, if it's a question of using an app to smooth that out, by all means, that might be helpful. All right, that's all I got. So I think it's fair to say, NetNetWalker, that you're much more 
pro these kinds of apps than I am. Totally. Yeah. I do I do want to mention one last thing, and that is a number of people show up whenever there's an app-driven game or a game that requires an app. There are people that show up on Board Gaming and say, I refuse to play this because in 10 years it'll be unplayable. And to a certain extent, I'm sympathetic to that. Obsolescence is a thing. And apparently when OSs update, older apps won't work properly. I know. Well, we have this. I, I know I have this discussion. If you played game... What we say, how many times are you going to play a game? Like we've talked about the same thing with these legacy games. If you've played a game 15 times is the number that I put on it, then you've already got your money's worth out of the game. So by the time an app goes out, you know, we're in the cult of the new people. <laughs> Move on to the next one. Yeah, not everyone's necessarily like us. I, no. I somehow doubt that the people who show up on Board Game Geek posting on Board Game Geek with an avatar, a micro, uh, five micro badges, and a geek badge who say, I'm not going to buy a game unless I know I'll be able to play it for 10 years. They're probably exaggerating because they probably have a collection and they probably undergo the necessary churn. If there is somebody who genuinely is going to maintain a really, really small collection and play the same game a hundred times over over the course of decades, then yeah, it's a concern. I don't know how many people are like that, though. And really, how many games are so good that they stand the test of time anyway? I do play a lot of games that were published in the 80s, but as a proportion of the overall release of games in the 80s, it's a vanishingly small number. Most of them are by Richard Hamblin anyway. You know, Magic Realm, uh, Gunslinger, Merchant of Venus. So yeah, if it's the case that some game gets released that requires an app and is that of that level, it's of a classic, then probably someone's going to devote the necessary effort to emulating that. Maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe emulating these uh, uh, portable apps will be borderline impossible. But generally my experience in the emulation community has convinced me that if something is popular enough, people are going to find a way to keep it in circulation. Agreed. Well, that's going to be it for today on So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very much for joining us. If you like what we do, please tell a friend. If you hate what we do, please tell an enemy. And if you really, really hate what we do, send a, a vicious chain email that promises curses on people if they don't listen to us and like what we do. Mark, stop sending me emails. You're my only friend, Walker. If you would like to get in touch with us, if you would like to send Walker emails as well, just send him an email at justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. If you'd like to get in touch with me, Mark Bigney, you can find me on Twitter at all the games you like. You can find the site for the show on Facebook, and that is where we keep most of our comments. We do read everything you send to us, and we will get back to you if we can. So please do find us there. Until later, then, this has been So Very Well About Games, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>